This podcast is a member of WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. You burst through the door, you find a small room filled with golden jewels. And a red dragon, he starts to breathe. Say, or die! The Save or Die Podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Welcome once again to Save or Die, episode number 74. A podcast version of the phlegm in the back of your throat. With us, for some <laughs> unexplicable reason, is DM Glenn. Hi. <laughs> DM Jim. Hey, hi. DM Liz. Hello. Who has never mentioned phlegm in any episode. (laughs) And with you, DM Mike, and our special guest, John Peterson. DM John, yay. Yay. The author. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. Author of the book, Playing at the World. A small book that is (laughs) full of lots of great info. And I have a feeling he might be regretting writing it after he gets through with this show. <laughs> As a guest host, just feel free to comment on anything and everything when we go through emails and stuff, John. Yeah, just elbow, elbow your way in and do it. I won't be shy. Okay, cool. All right, and we'll start as we usually do. What have we been doing since the last episode? DM Liz. Well, I've been enjoying the last bit of my brief vacation from work over the summer. I'll be starting back up again tomorrow. Um, as far as what I've been doing in gaming, well, we took a trip to Mississippi in the car the past few days ago, and so a lot of the time, a lot of the time spent in the car while I'm driving, Mike will run freeform games with me to keep me awake and alert so I'm not drifting off the side of the road. <laughs> yeah. Mississippi. Sleeping at the wheel is bad. <laughs> Mississippi by choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was born there. I had no choice. <laughs> I have but to go he back. left as soon as he could. That's right. I'll see your Mississippi and raise you one Kentucky. Ooh. Ooh, wow. What part of Kentucky? Oh, I grew up in Frankfort, Kentucky, Ooh-hoo. where we had to drive 100 miles to go to a game store. And you were thankful? <laughs> I, I, it helped me get to know all the Ralph Partha guys and eventually meet Tim Cask, so sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Cool. Very nice. And apart from that, also been doing still the Skype game that Angry Monk has been running for us. So that's pretty much been my gaming. Where we killed a red cap. Yes. And then got a new player who uh, showed up for his first game after a three-day metal concert in Great Britain with a hangover at what was 1 a.m. his time. Now that is dedication. I mean, second only to showing up at the table with a broken shoulder. Straight from the yard. That's pretty good. Well, what's more vintage than gaming after listening to Iron Maiden? That's right. I mean, really. 
So and he, just, and he just slid right into our game. He was yeah. awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. So welcome to the gaming group, Doc Mindwipe. <laughs> hey, Doc. Well, Jim, what have you been up to? And I suspect it might involve Dungeon Crawl Classics for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the basic D&D game, let me get the, my, my cred for this podcast out there for a place. Uh, so the basic D&D game, which was awesome. And, yeah, our uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics group just played last night. And um, I have a whole other podcast to talk about that on now. But I wanted to just uh, on air publicly sing the praises. I have the best gaming group on earth. I was just sitting at the table last night doing a scan and I'm like, we got old grognards in our forties all the way down to a 12 year old who was actually playing my first level wizard's apprentice. Cause his level zero occupation was wizard's apprentice. You know, uh, we got, uh, real live girls at the table, a Ooh, huge age. Uh, so much perkier than dead girls. <laughs> now, now all you need is serving wenches. Uh, and Which we had at the con, by the way. And it was just one of those things where, I mean, a lot of those players when we started playing DCC RPG came in from Pathfinder, and some of them came from the Retro D&D League where they're playing classic D&D. So the uh, style of that game, the play style of that game, the Retro D&D League people just melded right in. But the Pathfinder people struggled a little bit. But now we've played together as a group where it's all just starting to gel. And, you know, the second the Orc Champion dropped, you know, Nikki screams out, we loot the body, you know, with no hesitation. And I'm like, ah, I love Did my they- group. Did they check his spleen for emeralds? No. That'll be the next step. We didn't think to do that, but that, that's all I just wanted to say. I, I, I love so, my gaming group. So was Nikki the 12-year-old? No, uh, I, I, Nikki's like mid-20s. Okay. That would have been really cool if it was the 12-year-old. <laughs> they loot the body! Oh, uh, it's Micah. He and his dad play, but uh, poor Micah killed one of his own level zeros because he threw a javelin into melee. So this is how we learn. <laughs> Yeah, well, that can happen. All righty. Well, Glenn? Um, pretty dull around here. Um, our, my regular D&D, my basic D&D game is on hiatus until the 18th. And looks like we're going to be coming up on a four-day vacation in Corpus Christi. Yay. Uh, Corpus yeah. Christi in summer. Yay. Well, you know, I like, you know how many. The oceans for. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. You know, I'm an LA boy and I love the, I love the beach and stuff and I've been pining for it, but that's not exactly what I had in mind. I've been to a Corpus Christi. I've been to South Padre. You know, they need to clean that place up. Um, excuse me. Uh, let's see. Gaming wise, I got a couple of, uh, couple of sessions of Tunnels and Trolls in with Gage. My grandson oh. and and my little granddaughters are here. And Addie, the, she came in the second session in the middle. She didn't play, but she turned into a little cheerleader. <laughs> it's like every time he kills someone, like he kills an orc. Oh yeah! She start clapping. She's like, cool. she's five. <laughs> Did you email me your address so I could uh, send you those modules? I don't remember. I guess I'll have to do that after the show, huh? Okay, because I got a Tunnels and Troll free RPG day thing with your name on it. Ah, cool, cool. And I'm looking forward to August when they release. Yeah, you're the box. you're the boss monster in it. Thanks. <laughs> with your name on it. Yeah, true. Well, and that's pretty much about it, you know. Okay. Well, what have you been doing game wise recently, John? 
Game-wise, well, geez, I mean, I've really just been assiduously preparing for my appearance on, on this show. Obviously, that has been my oh, driving impetus for the past I, I, month, I'd say. Um, but I, it's true. Right now, I don't actually have a regular, like, tabletop game. I, I hesitate to say, but it's true. That's I'm kind of being in a, in a new place, and I don't know a ton of people here who are gaming yet. Um, so I've been doing like console gaming, doing things like uh, I just finished uh, Tomb Raider, and I've started playing The Last of Us. That's really what I've been doing for gaming for the past, you know, a couple months here. Okay, well, I mean, you know, any port in a storm, especially when you move to a new area, because you know, not only do you not know have a gaming group, you don't know, you know, who who fits your view of gaming too, because nothing's worse than getting in a gaming group that has a different philosophy. No, definitely, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. Not looking forward to the, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you'd well, think that you write this book about the history of games to be really easy for you to like meet people, <laughs> meet people yeah. play with. But um, at least to date, that's been true. I, you know, back in the day, um, ironically, things like Gen Con often served as a way for gamers who didn't know people locally, who might live thousands of miles from where Gen Con took place, that's where true. they would actually meet local people, and then would be able to form, you know, games based on that when they got back. So, this year at Gen Con, I'm hoping maybe I'll, I'll run into some people that seem cool. And in a way, that's still going on. When we were at North Texas RPG Con a few weeks ago, we met some people from Denton, our hometown, yeah, our, where we live, who are gamers. We had no idea who they were, you know. Really? I had no idea you were in the area. Uh, so, it, it still happens. Sure and you know, I, I could be getting into the roll twenty thing or the Skype gaming thing. I'm, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm quite sold on it yet, to be honest. But okay, well, I, I, it's a different experience. Yeah. It actually has its upside because the Skype uh, gaming. All of a sudden, it's like for those of us who are old enough, it's like uh, we used to when we were kids listening to CBS Radio Mystery Theater, and that all of a sudden you're playing D and D, but it's like theater of the mind kind oh, of. Oh, the thing. actual play podcast. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. It was way cooler than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are doing this who are doing amazing things with it. I mean, the the media that have opened up to us from the Internet in terms of where this is going to go with gaming, I think we're still in the infancy of it. And I, it's going to have a lot of potential, I think, to create a really immediate, interactive, tabletop-like experience. And obviously, <laughs> tools like, like Roll20 are getting us closer. Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated to see where this is going to go in the next couple of years. Maybe we'll end up with virtual Cheetos. <laughs> virtual Cheetos. <laughs> we can virtual only pizza. Yeah, Virtual Mountain Dew. And, and they'll still argue over toppings. You watch. Well, that, that's like the big design question about these things, right, is how much do you try to replicate the tabletop experience? Do you want what people see on a screen to look like a tabletop with people around it, where there are dice and, you know, all those familiar accoutrements, or, or should it be different? Should we depart from that? And uh, Oh, see, now you're in my arena. I do UX, UI design for a living, and that is right. the question. How much skeuomorphism do we put into this interface? Yeah. You're worried, not- worried about the uncanny valley, are we? Well, not quite the Uncanny Valley here, but, yeah, I mean, you know, do you need to see an avatar of someone sitting across the table from you? Is that the way to get the most immersive experience, or is there something else that would be superior? Should it look more just like, you know, WoW does, say? And uh, I, I don't know, right? I think there's a lot of knobs to twiddle there, and I don't, I don't know what the magic formula is. Yeah. I'll be curious to see where it goes, though. Well, I think, like, with game styles and the games people play, you're going to have people who are going to want different things. So you might wind up with a whole bunch of different, you know, more immersive, less immersive 
you know, depending on, you know, where people are gravitating to. Yeah. Yeah, my gut tells me the the idea is not to try and replicate the social experience of sitting across the table because there are limits you can't cross. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to our emails, shall we? All right. Shall we? Yes. Liz? All right. Our first email is from Todd Bunn. Hi, Todd. And Todd writes, Greetings, SOD staff. Hi, Todd. I have fairly recently become a devoted fan of your podcast. For the last several years, I have had several friends tell me about all of the great gaming podcasts available that I should be listening to. I've sampled many, but until finding Save or Die, none of them really seem to draw me in. Aww. I admire the family (laughs) friendliness of your show, and the entire cast seems like a group that I would love to game with. Okay, I admit, I do already game with one of you. (laughs) (coughs) I pondered several times on why I like Save or Die better than all the rest, and just a few days ago it finally struck me. DM Mike is very level-headed and interested in the facts. He helps lead the team through the topics at a thorough and steady keel. I do? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I keep seeing Mike with a captain's hat on. His his wonderful wife, Liz, is just as well-spoken and brings a very family-oriented and very pleasant vibe to the show. Jim is quick-witted, energetic, and always has at least one fireball loaded in his chamber. You better believe it. (laughs) Glenn towers above them all (laughs) with what seems a gruff demeanor at first, but he's a family man with a heart of gold. Congratulations, you are the only podcast to successfully channel the Fantastic Four dynamic. Excelsior, Todd. Thank you, thank you, Todd. I'm going to be editing this email. I don't want people to know that I'm a family man with a heart of gold. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that heart of gold he keeps on his desk, you know, as a paperweight. No, that's my heart of lead right next to it. Oh, okay. Hey, as long um, as I'm the guy that gets to throw fireballs, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, I was really hoping to be Ben Grimm, but I guess I'll take Sue Storm. <laughs> well, I, since he's the captain, I guess you're the first mate. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> Does that make Jim the cabin boy? <laughs> fireball, fireball. No, he's the red shirt. Because of the fireball, see. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Well, thanks for the email, Todd, and the kind okay. words. Uh, Todd has a PS. Yes. Oops. He says, I have recently been on a Rob Kuntz collecting kick and was wondering if you have pondered the possibility of an episode revolving around his works and contributions to the game. I would especially like to hear more about the OD&D supplement that never was, Calibrune. Or, if you have already covered these topics, please point me to the episode number. Well, we haven't covered the topic, but from what I've seen of Rob Kuntz's comments regarding that um, item, he seems very unwilling to talk about its original D&D setting. Um, he wants to develop it into a quote-unquote modern campaign setting. So, with that. You know, don't know if that's going to happen. But you know, we should have I, on the show. I agree. It would have been interesting to to hear that if he had been willing to talk about it. We should have him on the show sometime. Hmm? Maybe it sometime. never. It never hurts to ask. He was my roommate at North Texas Con, and we got along like two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. Well, here's an interesting 
thought. Um, John, when you were doing your research for the book, did anything about um, Kuntz's Calibrin supplement come up with your, you know, when you were digging up research? Uh, not, not really in the sense that it wasn't something that left trails in the periodicals of the day and things like that. Um, the studies I did was mostly a study about kind of the history of ideas and their transmission and how we kind of got this amazing culture and how far back it went and who the protagonists were that kind of moved the ball forward. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously there, there is a tremendous wealth now, um, she said, probably only gotten to the collecting community in the last five years or so of what the primary sources were for, for Calibrun. And yeah, I do, I do agree uh, with the assessment that Rob seems to be interested now in putting that into uh a new commercial product that he thinks is going to capture more of the original, uh, more freeform, uh, less kind of uh, legislative, prescriptive, rule-driven vision of, of role-playing. And I, I think that's a very laudable goal. I think really kind of recapturing that early spirit is uh, is very worthwhile. And I, I even think I hear some of that messaging about about Fifth Ed, about D&D Next, and the things that, that they're trying to do there. Um, so it may be the pendulum is broadly swinging that way, but... No, I, I didn't cover Calibrun at all. You won't even find the, the string in, in playing at the world. Um, but yeah, you remember as well, just... the coverage cuts out basically in like 1977 too. So, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, it doesn't really look much beyond that in terms of RPG products. Yeah, I seem to recall you just, uh, you know, for Rob Kuntz, you predominantly mentioned his activities in the Castle and Crusade Society and with Greyhawk. Yeah, I mean, I, there are some in the fifth chapter, um, which covers kind of the immediate aftermath of the publication of D&D, some bits about mm-hmm. his role in, in the company then. And obviously, uh, kind of like Dave Arneson's role, it was a, a, a brief, influential, and kind of ill-fated <laughs> uh, yeah. relationship that he contracted with TSR. And, um, you know, I, I try not to dwell, I guess, on the personality issues and the, the harder questions about kind of why some people fell out, I guess, of the community there. I really try to focus much more on what, what the positive contributions were people made and um, how this created this amazing industry rather than dwelling on the, the smaller issues where there were kind of interpersonal problems or whatever. Okay. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, thanks again for the email, Todd. And do we have any others? We do. Our next one is from Brian Russell. Um, otherwise known as Iron Beaver. <laughs> hey, I beaver. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I've already razzed him on my other show. I don't need to do it this time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Brian writes, Great show, gang. Makes me wish I could attend at some point. Sorry to hear about the letter Mike got. Ignore this sentence if you want the occurrence to go away. <laughs> Listening got me more excited about OSRCon here in Toronto. OSRCon.ca. It's a fun little con on the grow. Regarding Kojo's question about paladins and druids in Classic, I'm surprised no one mentioned the Labyrinth Lord AEC. Down with descending armor class, Iron Beaver. (laughs) P.S. Quebecers aren't that bad. Ontarians, particularly Torontonians, are actually the most disliked in Canada. British Columbia is like California, and Alberta is like Texas. I'm very sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. Thanks for the email. Well, you know... Yes? Yes? 
Did he say down with descending armor class? Oh, down with ascending Sending armor, armor class. class. Yes. All right. So, so Thanks. If I- <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say you're not doing too good for Canada if you start like that. <laughs> if, if I if I misread that initially, I, my apologies. He did so, say down with ascending armor class. It was hard to tell. That's all. <laughs> and ascending armor class is more old school, though. Of course, chainmail's ascending class with chainmail, chainmail's armor class was ascending from from one to nine rather than down from 10 to 2, like D&D. Mm-hmm. At least they just went to 9. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had not realized that about Chainmail. <sighs> so, Ascending Armor class is actually more old school. Anyway. Thank you for that, John. I'm going to needle Glenn from now on. It's true. I, said, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it, that's that's how it was. And I mean, it, it meant something slightly different too. The semantics of armor class are different in chainmail, so it's not quite as straight. It's not an apples to apples comparison in some respects. Like it, I... Well, it's just you know, armor class in chainmail was something that um, it, it was scaled against particular weapons and their effectiveness against different types of armor. So actually, having more armor would make you fare worse against certain classes of weapons than others. So it's not oh. quite like the armor class of D&D. Okay. Okay. Sounds bad. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for the email, Iron Beaver. And, yes, the situation with North Texas and, and my Battletech game has been resolved. It was, to a certain degree, miscommunication and misphrasing, as well as a misunderstanding of what happened at the game. But it's all good. And... That's that. So we we would neither deny or. <laughs> oh, I, I'm definitely going to jump in with a I told you so. <laughs> well, Yay. I'm going to be back at North Texas RPG Con next year. So ha ha ha. Yeah. And so. no, no, you're not exactly right. You didn't exactly tell me so, Jim. But we'll talk about it later. You're going, Mike. <laughs> it's more of a fifty percent, huh? You're not going? No, I'm going. Oh, okay, damn. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it was all resolved. They're, they're allowing the Battletech game after all. So. All right. Now I just got to calm full on down. In, in my defense, I'm just rooting for happy endings. Well, it, it seems to be a happy ending. And regardless, I do not change my opinion that this year's North Texas RPG Con totally rocked. It was an awesome convention. Oh, I'm yeah, arguing with you there. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, equal equal to or better than Gary Khan, and that's a bold statement. Yeah, well, now, we can't say that because we yeah. have yet to actually make it to a Gary Khan, but we really do hope to one of these days. One of these days. Yeah, um, you, you think so, John? You heard some good things. Well, I was saying, yeah. I mean, I've heard that it was fantastic. <laughs> I, I am really sorry that I, I couldn't be there myself. Um, actually, the day that it started, that North Texas started, I was in New York filming this uh, PBS spot. Uh-huh. Um, that was, I just came out a, a week or so ago about tabletop gaming. And is, that, so, is that the um, spot that just went online? Yeah, that was actually, so literally the first day of North Texas, I was in New York, like filming that. <laughs> um, that's one of the things that kept me away. Yeah, and it's a good little program. We'll be putting it in the show notes for for the listeners to oh, yeah. be able to get a look at it themselves. Oh, yeah. This is, this is a lot easier than Thaco's Hammer over there. They're hounding me to go to Gen Con. <laughs> and I keep saying no, I don't want to. <laughs> if you have something against Gen Con, or I've, I've always found it fun. I too big. Hmm. 
I've got, I've got, uh, if you want to sit down over a cup of coffee on Skype sometime, I'll tell you about it, but. <laughs> oh, okay, no, fair enough. <clears throat> I mean, the, yeah. the auction there, if you're a collector, can't be beat. The, um, you know, there, there are some games I played in there, like, uh, for example, Dave Wesley ran a reconstruction of his, uh, original Brownstein game oh, there in cool. 2009. That, I think things like that that I, I'm just not sure I would have gotten anywhere else. Oh, I, um, I sh- I'm sure it's fantastic. But as I tell my wife, any con I have to register a year in advance because six months out, everything will be gone as far as like lodging and stuff. I don't want to deal with. I, I kind of know what you mean, Glenn. I mean, I've, I've never been to Gen Con. I've been to Origins. Huh. But, yeah, I've been there. Um, I, generally, I generally like a con that's big enough that there's always a game of something I can get into right. or there's a decent vendor area, but it's small enough that I can just sit around and talk to people I mean, and not feel like one face in a million. I mean, I have still great memories of Dundracon and OrcCon out in out on the West Coast, and to me, those were big cons. They were they were yeah. big, they were bigger than North Texas, but not as big as Gen Con, which made it really comfortable. And that's not just a gaming bias. I mean, I've I've never been that interested in going to Comic Con for the same reason, or when I was in the SCA going to Australia, um, or Penzik for the same reasons. Right. It's just your. Some people love those big. Big things, and that's great. You know, it's just well, a matter of taste. My, people whose Myers Briggs start with the letter E enjoy forty thousand people. People who start with I introverts that wears me out. So I feel you, Glenn. But sometimes you just got to pony up and go see the show. I know it also involves like you know an airfare this time, unless we want to like you know caravan it, and I don't think we want to do that. Ooh. Road trip it. Oh boy, yeah, Indianapolis. We. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, do we have any more emails? Well, Brian sent another email almost immediately after the first one um, titled, One More Thing. (laughs) And it's a single sentence. He says, I think Glenn should lose some XP for not making an of mice and men quote (sighs) when Liz and Jim were about to discuss bunnies and burrows. Oh, Lord. (laughs) How did you miss that? Oh, You see, because it was a book. And... and Dude, it was a dude. It was, it a, was a play. It was a movie. Oh, okay. Then, <laughs> then was, you have no excuse. It was a play I did part of in college. Then you really have no excuse. <laughs> you might have to lose XP then. Sorry, Glenn. I was trying to back you up here. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I pre- I appreciate it, Mike. But minus one hundred XP for Glenn. You know, I can't. I can't ignore the. You know, it was a play. It was a movie too. Damn it. No. Anyway, <laughs> I just just. My my Twitch. <laughs> but any any other emails? Um, our final email for today is from DM Kojo. Wow. <laughs> he says, hi, Sodcasters. Hey, Kojo. I wanted to get back with you to thank you for answering my voicemail about converting a 2E game to classic D&D. Our group determined to continue the campaign in 2E as the party moves from Module B2 to Module U1, The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. Ah. Also, oh, we, we didn't sell him on it. <laughs> ah. Minus XP for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> As you can see, I have been converting Classic and 1E Adventures to my 2E campaign. That's amazing. That, Brian does that. <laughs> we're, That's we're, amazing. We're running through a hor- the horror on the, horror on the hill right now. Wow. All that work. Because, you know... 
as I'm well known for saying, being completely different games. <laughs> you have beaten that dead horse down into a subterranean <laughs> cavern by <laughs> a, a geologic strata at this point. Oh, boy. Um, Anyway, he goes on to say, one of my players has volunteered to run a BX campaign after this 2E1 ends, and I will actually get to play for the first time since I was 12, since I was always asked to be the DM after that. I hear you. I had some random gaming questions for each of the hosts, which I was curious about. Number one, what is your favorite old school official TSR module to play in and to run? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna add John into this one, and we'll start with him. And oh, John's man. going what? 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 <laughs> no, it's a tough one. Taco, um, I don't know. <laughs> well, how about I, mean, I go first, and that'll give him more time to think. Okay. I, I mean, I you know, no, I can answer. I mean, it would have to be the Giant series. I think the Giant series exemplifies exactly what the old school modules were about, and I think, how how could you go wrong with the Giant series? Yeah, that's a good answer. That is, I mean, killing killing hordes of giants. I mean, you know, it's it's cool. Yeah. Uh, okay, Liz. Well, I tend to go on the low level end of the spectrum because I personally just find it really fun to be a low level character struggling to, you know, get the extra abilities and power, and so. My favorite modules to play in, well, to play in, um, hmm. I really like them um, in one against the Cult of the Reptile God. Um, I also enjoyed the, the A series, the Slavers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both, they both start, well, in one is low level, but Slaver starts out <laughs> low level. By the time you get through the end of it, you should be pretty much mid-level at that point. Um, but, yeah, those are my favorites. I like them the best. Okay. Jim? Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. I'm sure that will come as no big shock to anyone. From the Gamma World guy? No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I almost went with Legion of Gold, but I, had, I scoped it back to D&D. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because and I can explain. I mean, it's it, it's it's a tournament <laughs> module, so it's kind of killer dungeon module anyway. And I love those where you're like fighting for your life through the whole thing. And just the the genre mashup thing, just that that smells like you know old school and chipping poly- polyhedrals to me. Cool. And that that would probably be my second choice, Jim. Because I, I, it is a fantastic module. Yeah, Wolf in the Fold. Gotta love it. As a DM, you just gotta love the Wolf in the Fold. Monster. That's awesome. By the way, on a side note, uh, Mr. Gamma World, I found there's still a Gamma World mud going on for free play. Really? Online. Yeah. Wow. You might, might, have to, for- might have to find that sometime, eh? I forgot all about muds. <laughs> <laughs> Some people apparently have not. Have not, yeah. Now, if you could find a metamorphosis alpha of mud, you'd be right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So- now. I'm still trying to master Skype and work my way up to Google+. Plus. Ooh. Okay, Glenn. Well, um, I'd have to say to play in good old B1, and that's mainly due to Bad Mike's influence because this, I, this game is fun. I enjoy the hell out of his B1 game every year. Stuff on dogs. <laughs> 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 it is. 
uh, reducing the dog population in a new world <laughs> one, one dog at a time. time. <laughs> That's why there was only that old dog left in the village when we played less, this last time. All the other dogs have been taken into the dungeon and killed. We were reducing the elf population there for a minute. <laughs> we, we don't spare neuter in this town. We sent him to the dungeon. <laughs> uh, and to play, I found out some of the Thunder Rift stuff is a lot of fun. Quest for the Silver Sword, I played with my grandchildren, and we had a ball. It's just a basic old, you know, go get the artifact type thing. And it, it's great. It's great for, for first, second, third levels. And uh, that's the kind of stuff I'd start out people with. I'd use that. Chris was Quest for the Silver Sword. Well, like Glenn, I'm going to stick with uh, classic modules myself, too. So to play in, I would say B2, keep on the Borderlands. Okay. Just because, you know, it's so iconic and, you know, it's so much fun. And Mike never gets into bad Mike's B1 game. <laughs> if we, That's if right. We, if we threw this up online, if we threw this up online as a poll, I bet B2 would get it. Could be. And to run... Even though I've never had many opportunities to run it, is B4, The Lost City. Yeah, that's your because, favorite, isn't it? Like, it's just, you know, it gives you the whole background. You've got a totally isolated environment to keep your PCs in. And as DM, you're expected to build more and more onto it to keep people going. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, his question limited us to official TSR modules. Otherwise, I'd be sprinkling this with Judges Guild, too. Me, too. But anyway, so official, that's it. Next question. And his next question is, what is your favorite character class to play? Liz. And what? Or, we'll your... start with John again since, since right. we started. With and him. what is your request? What yeah, is your favorite color? I, I, I mean, I think, you know, I vacillate typically between magic user and thief. Um, I, I, I'm either a, a, a drunken, irascible thief type. Or a, a very lofty and jaded mage type. Um, between those two poles, I think it gets like the two sides of my personality perfectly. And uh, yeah, that's that, so that uh, one of those two. Tough to say. Okay, Liz. Uh, well, I tend to either play a mage or a cleric, um, depending on my mood at the time. Um, I do like to be able to spell cast, so. Basically, any kind of character that has spellcasting capabilities, I tend to go to those more than the non-spell-using ones. So whether it's a mage, a cleric, an elf, half-elf, you know, some, you know, any type of character that has the ability to do spell work, I'll generally be doing that. Okay. Jim? Uh, magic user all the way, baby. And uh, if it's uh, DCC, RPG, or basic D&D, uh, second choice is enough for the same reason Liz just said. Sword and a spell. Cool. Glenn? Well, uh, I tend to play a lot of fighters, mainly because I find them, if you're not worried about slinging spells, if I can do a funny, a great personality type, it's usually a fighter. Because it's easy to go, okay, he's a fighter, but he does this. But if there's any other personality that fit, like I've seen some great clerics. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some really interesting clerics. And right now, my basic game... Yeah, like your little halfling Jewish cleric. My little Jewish cleric in your 2E game, yeah. <laughs> Wait, yeah. the what? The what? Halfling <laughs> Jewish cleric. He yeah. did. Yes. It was uh, great, too. It was fun. <laughs> um, and in uh, oh, um, Crispy's old Labyrinth Lord Skype game, I played uh, a drunken cleric, which was fun. Um, was that uh, X2, Castle Amber? Yes, it was. Oh. Um, I can't remember the name, uh, Sean O'Rockhead or something like that. Um, and, but he was a lot of fun. Um, and I, and also the, in the, uh, basic game I've been playing, I've been really enjoying playing an elf for the reasons you guys gave. I mean, and this is first time I've actually played something, a character that slings spells on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, it just, I'm actually learning, I'm learning how to, Play magic in D and D for after all these years. After just okay, I'll play a fighter, you know, because well, an elf say, is a good way to get your feet wet with using spell yeah. casting. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Um, well, to paraphrase Raj from Big Bang Theory, you know, when Gandhi put forward his passive resistance and pacifism, he must have never known how much fun it was blowing stuff up. <laughs> how about you, Mike? Uh, exclusively a, a monk assassin multi-class. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, fighter or thief generally, again, depending on my mood. Um, if I'm generally joining a new group, I'll play a fighter just because it's the easiest way to get involved without, you know, necessarily getting too intricately involved in the thing. And also, if your character gets killed, big deal. Just crank out another fighter. But if it's a group I think I'm going to stay around with for a while, I'll generally do a, a thief. Though Again, recently I've been doing um, uh, an elf, which I'm essentially playing in the 2E game right now, which is a fighter magic user. And it is kind of fun. We're actually getting a lot of votes for elves here, come to think of it. Yeah, it's strange because... Yeah, I usually be. I, if I like, I said, if I'm, if I play a lot of fighters, and most of them are dwarves. So, <laughs> playing as an a, elf. You know, as a teenager, for some reason, I always equated elves in D and D with Elric uh, Michael Moorcock. So that was my template when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, my very first character was an elf, and like I say nowadays, you know, I was a total girl, and I played an <laughs> elf <laughs> for my very first D and D character. <laughs> And even, again, to get back in, I always bring things back to history. In Chainmail, uh, they had a concept of, of combination types so that you could be both a hero and a wizard at the same time. And the prototype they gave for that actually was Elric. That was like the excuse in the text. Here's an example of a guy who has both, both got a sword and can cast spells. And you really see exactly that come into the elf of OD&D and from there into Holmes and, and onwards. So, so okay. the line from Elric to that is actually a pretty direct one. That's true. Uh, I really enjoyed reading that part of the book, you know, talking about the hero, the superhero, the wizard. And the first thing I thought of was the dungeon board game because they incorporated those archetypes back into the board game as to what you could play. Sure. Well, I mean, but this is because Dungeon, the board game, was designed before D&D, mm-hmm. and it actually was based directly on Chainmail, not yeah. on D&D. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've never known that. And, no, I didn't but know that. once you pointed that out, it's like, well, yeah, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they do. And it's they really, dovetail really nicely. 
Yeah, and it gives us tremendous insight, actually, into some of the kind of variant monsters and systems that were under consideration in the Twin Cities at the time that the dungeon was originally designed, especially now that, again, in the past couple of years, so many new fascinating and historic resources have come to light. You know, one of them are, are these um, pre-publication editions of, of Dungeon. And you can look at what the monster lists are in that and kind of compare them to both Chainmail and to, to eventually publish came from Dungeon and ended up being there, so... Okay. All right. Well, any other questions, or is um, that Kojo? Uh, Kojo has one last question for uh, us. Oh, okay, Kojo, go for it. And his last question is... <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, he's writing our podcast, too. <laughs> he writes all podcasts. That's part of his charm. Uh, yeah, he's with ours, too. Go ahead. We got him on the show. Shit. Sorry. <laughs> And Kojo finally wants to know, what is your favorite old-school game to play that is not D&D? Ooh, John, I'm sure it's going to have trouble narrowing this one down. Um, favorite old-school game to play? So what, how, where, do we, where do we cut off old-school here? Because that's tough. Um, uh, let's say 89. Oh, 89. Oh, that's easy then. Probably Call of Cthulhu. Interesting. Yeah, Call of Cthulhu. That's fun. Well, for us brainy types, it's always something like that, you know. <laughs> and we I, don't mind losing characters. I almost said Call of Cthulhu when I was, you know, thinking about this one. But What's yours? Well, thinking about it, while I do enjoy Call of Cthulhu very much, especially the Gaslight version, I have more often <sighs> in the past um, played Champions more than Call of Cthulhu. So I guess I would have to say, you know, that was that would actually have been my favorite because I played Champions a lot. Um, first, first to third edition. Yeah, first through third edition Champions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't touched fourth edition and beyond with the hero system. The books are just getting way too big. <laughs> Jim? Uh, totally Gamma World. I mean, because I've, I've run a Gamma World <gasps> campaign for three decades now. Ah, but uh, Most it, unexpected. I know. It's a big shocker. <laughs> but uh, it's a weird system because it just won't die despite the company that's publishing it at the, at the time's best efforts to kill it. it just, <laughs> the system will not die. <laughs> yes, they have a small fanatical following. Much like Holmes D&D enthusiasts. That's true. Much. Thank you. Small Thank, and you. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Glenn? Freaks and crawdads. No. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to say tune, even though it falls within the... Yes, it does. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's, again, Champions. I played first through fifth. And I've got to say, Liz, fourth edition, the big blue book is probably the apex of the system right there. That is the best of all possible worlds. After that, it kind of like, it gets real old. <laughs> I haven't played Champions since the 80s, but if you asked me this question in the 80s, Champions would have been my number three. Okay. I also also Call of Cthulhu. Okay. And believe it or not, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Wow. The, the first edition. Ooh. With the lovely critical hit tables that, yes, that was, go into glowing details that was about the what happens to your entrails of, and, and er, body parts. And remember, and, and remember, my group, this is a group that thought Rollmaster was too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember back when the 
Warhammer critical hit tables came out, uh-huh. a lot of people were incorporating their critical hit tables into their D and D and AD games. Kevin McCarley did uh-huh. in our game, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he just said with relish the description of what happened when your character was critical hitted. Well, I've never played Call of Cthulhu. Could you guys explain to me the attraction of a game where you know at the outset you're doomed? <laughs> it's it's the character interaction. It's more role well. Character. You're not absolutely doomed. You're just kind of doomed, and a humanity is doomed. But uh, so you, but you're not going to live to see it. <laughs> but you can. You know, it was win. a game. Go ahead. Now go on. No, 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 you go. No, you're the guest. All right. All right. Somebody that's the guest. go. So, <laughs> it was a game that really inverted the traditional, I'm an adventurer, I'm out to better myself, I'm out to find lucre, and to really, I, I'm confronting, you know, extra human, powerful outsiders, and the best thing I can hope for is to survive. <laughs> and just, yeah, I think really changing the story that radically, it's hard to point to an earlier game that, you know, I think ended up changing the whole trajectory of the kinds of stories we told with role-playing games and really all the White Wolf stuff. I mean, if I think about it, yeah, if we if 89ers are cut off, then Ars Magica is within it. So I should probably say Ars Magica would be a close second for me to this. Ah. But, I mean, the, the whole kind of storytelling revolution that occurred in the 90s, I think that the, the germ of that is in the way that Call of Cthulhu really changed what a role-playing game was going to be about. And you know what? You're doomed with the Outer Gods, but it really feels good to beat the crap out of minions and the high priest. Yeah. It really does. The whole idea is not to defeat the Outer Gods. It's to defeat their minions because you really have no chance. Yeah, you've you got to stop the human people who are trying to bring them here. Yeah. They, they, they play it. They big group of them play at our local game store, and I'll have to go give it a try. But I, I'm really, I think I'm just stuck in my own perceptions because you're talking about it. I'm like, well, if, if I could play Hellboy, that would be cool. You know? Well, I find it, I think I find it very, I guess, liberating, where you know, as a player, that you are going to your character will eventually either get killed or lose sanity to the point where. It's no longer viable as a player character. We just retire. Yeah, they but, lock um, you in a rubber room. But on the other hand, when playing the game and you know that's you know going to be your outcome, you're a lot more freed to take your character and do something you know to sacrifice yourself for your for your fellow players. And I think that you can get a lot more heroic role-playing out of Call of Cthulhu. So that's what you mean, John, by the uh, inversed narrative and the the focus more on the good of the story than the individual character. Well, and, and, you know, D&D is driven, as we know, by this this progression mechanic, right, by this idea that as bad things happen to you, you get better. And the sanity system is a great example of how bad things happen to you get worse. <laughs> Honestly, it's, mm-hmm. in some respects, it's a much more realistic you know, narrative for a game, right? <laughs> and you know, um, when you I'm go sorry. off and fight battles and swing swords, sure, you can become more proficient and maybe your nerves are steeled and you get jaded. But the more you fight, the, the more messed up you're going to be, like physically and emotionally. And that you get better from this has always been a kind of counterintuitive narrative. And, you know, the sanity system is a great example of how you kind of subvert that and show, show a different way to approach the game. Yeah, I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, you're a human, you see the undead for the first time. 
it creeps you out. Where in D and D, it's ghouls, get them. Yeah. Um, D and D is one way. That's another way. Um, it's just, and also the interaction, the character. If if you're doing it, if you're playing it right, the character interaction and the investigation is is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and I've I've had more deaths in a regular D and D game than I've had in a Call of Cthulhu game. By the way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, Call of Cthulhu would probably be my second choice, but my first one is going to have to be Classic Traveler. Okay. Oh, that's a good pick. Oh, Black wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Free Black Book Traveler. Oh, be- before, the, be- if Chaosium, if you're listening, uh, it's the Save or Die podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> traveler, you said. Yeah, Classic Traveler, the original brown book or Black Book uh, three set. You know. When you can die during character generation. Yeah, I, I could not warm up to that. That's, that's that great. Game. I really couldn't. I played a whole campaign of it. I still couldn't warm up to it. Oh, yeah, I love it. But then I like the older, um, hard science, science fiction stories, the Asimov, the Heinlein, the various, you know, the sword worlds, the Flandry novels, all that stuff, which is very obviously where Traveler was inspired from. Somebody told me one time that this, the Starship's computers had about as much memory as a VIC-20. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it is true, and that's a perfect example of doing science fiction. I mean, well, I mean, you know, I'm reading Isaac Asimov, you know, the Foundation series. It's like 10,000 years in the future as they get the cassette tape, you know, the, the magnetic tape memory out of their supercomputers and roll up <laughs> tape thing, and like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to run into problems like that. But. Well, if there's anything I miss about the era your book covered, John, and what we're talking about is when I was that age, and this was all starting, we played everything. I mean, uh, I missed Call of Cthulhu, but every game we've talked about, we played, and especially if TSR published it, Gangbusters, you know, whatever it was, we didn't care. We tried it and played it at least once, and I'm not as likely to do that at, at the age I am now. Yeah, that's something curious that the old school renaissance seems to have missed a bit of, is that there was nothing more old school than playing anything that came out. Would you agree with that, John? I mean, the tremendous proliferation of these old school games. I I think it's almost gotten to the point, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense necessarily, but, you know, if if you're interested in gaming, you're almost obliged to build your own retro clone these days. Um, You know, it seems to be kind of like something you... You would, you know, it used to be you would just play. Well, now you need to design, really. Um, yeah, so it, yeah. It'd be hard to play because there are just so many. And I think they are kind of all over the place in terms of um, what what properties they offer and kind of what, what, I guess, differentiating features they offer. And, yeah, back in the day, I mean, you know, when you look at the earliest days of the RPG industry, certainly it was manageable up until maybe 1980. You really could play every game that came out, and a new thing would come out, Chivalry and Sorcery would come out, and everyone would say, oh, wow, this is an amazing new game, I'm never going to play D&D again, this does absolutely <laughs> everything right, and they would sit down and start playing it, and it, you know, there, there were two problems with this always, right? One, well, not all these games hit on magic formulas that actually were very playable, they would have some specific advantages, but then they would have, like, crippling faults <laughs> yeah. go along with them. <clears throat> Yes. Right, and then you know, second, it was just the 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 fact that unlike um, you know, unlike if you you find a new popular author you like, 
a consensus of a group of people to like a game enough to play it, right? And there was always an inertia from existing games, from D&D especially, and from existing campaigns. People didn't want to abandon their character. They didn't want to abandon their systems. Right. And even if something new and shiny came along, it wouldn't necessarily be able to persuade everyone to switch. And finding those tipping points was, was very difficult at the time. Yeah. And I laugh because you're absolutely right. I mean, that was our mindset. You know, whenever Chivalry and Sorcery or RuneQuest or the Fantasy Trip came out, it was like, oh, this is so much cooler. We're never going to play D&D. And six months later, we're back playing D&D. Our group was more like, you know, the thing you did, if you had brothers and sisters, did you do a thing where, like, you're reading comic books and one character would belong to you and one would belong to your brother? Like, you'd be a Superman guy and Batman was your brother's guy? No, my my siblings never played RPGs. I was the youngest, so we were we were like that in in the pre nineteen eighty days with these games, or, or around nineteen eighty, because uh, like D and D became my brother's game. He ran it, Gamma World for me, and then we get tired of that oh. for a while. And and my buddy Henry would run Boot Hill, and then the yeah, mystic- I mean I didn't have brothers, but yeah, the fr- the various members of our gaming group all did that. You know, everybody would tend. I mean, they would be some overlap, but for the most part, you know. I would run D&D, you know, Rollins would run Traveler, uh, yep. yeah, Todd would run, you know, Squad Leader, I don't know. <laughs> my, group went like, my group went like this. We played some D&D sometime. Mark was the champion's DM. He was also the – other people were D&D DMs. I was in the group. It was always, oh, God, here comes Glenn with another game, another new game. But yeah, on a side note, that is exactly why the whole argument of a book that only the DM could see was never really going to work. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, several people ran D and D at different times, so you're right. going to have players who, by definition, have read the DM's information. But this became an integral part of TSR's business model at the time, right? Was the notion that they kept needing to put out new supplements with new information that would at least briefly be secret from players. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they thought that this was a very sustainable model, and I mean, it, it certainly took them farther than you think it might. You can't tell Vince that. Well, of course, <laughs> TSR also thought there was no money in modules at the very beginning. You know, adventures. So, you know, it it, it just. It was a whole, like you mentioned in your book, it's a whole new paradigm that was being created there. So nobody knew what was or wasn't going to work necessarily. It was, it was, it was a wild west town, pretty Mm. much. All right. Well, thank you, Kojo, for that, for the email and the questions. Yeah. And I think that leads us to our voicemail, and then we will take a break for uh, in, in. for information, and then we'll move right into Game On. All right. And this is from who? Uh, from Montana Cole Montana. Ah, the gun, the gun thrower. Okay. Yes, the Marvel superheroes gun thrower. And here he is. Hello, this is Montana calling the Save or Die podcast. I had a suggestion. I might past campaign I ran, and in the campaign I'm currently playing, and we have encountered uh, wargaming where we have uh, had mass combat with a sacking of a castle and fighting off giants. I was just thinking it might be a good idea if y'all went over that for anybody that's encountering mass combat in their games. Also, Jim, I feel you with the monks and assassins. They are not useful. All of my players just want to play a wrestler, mass wrestler monk, and it drives me nuts. 
Although in my past AD&D game, I had somebody play an assassin illusionist dual class character, and that was pretty cool. But anyway, y'all, uh, y'all have a great one. See you at the con. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for the voicemail. And Vindication. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take but, it. Yeah, but as far as that, yeah, that would be a good episode to do. Though I think we'd probably just talk, make the subject matter how to deal with large-scale battles in yeah. classic D&D because there's plenty of ways of taking care of it without engaging in wargaming. Or oh, what's that's wrong? A perfectly, that's a perfectly valid way of handling it if you want to. And we're going to well, call it... We're going to call it "What's Wrong with the War Machine." No, I mean it's an easy answer. You don't want to do a. You don't want to break it down to a war game. Just put an 18th level magic user on one side, <laughs> or a Balrog. Sorry, Pit Fiend. Pit Fiend. Oh, Type 16. Anyway. <laughs> Thou shalt not pass. <laughs> or something like that. Something. I mean, certainly the the intention of D anD D when it came out was that you would handle mass combats with the mass combat rules of chainmail. And, I mean, the, the, if you look at OD&D, it's amazing how little it really says about the way combat is supposed to be adjudicated. Um, there are some tables, but you can sift through those books to your heart's content. You'll never find something that gives you a sense of initiative order, about how, how, how combat really mechanically would work. And it, it, it does effectively just say, if you're going to do combat, defer it to chainmail. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the beginning good. of accessorization. Yes. The retro D and D league here in town uh, just recently played through some chainmail with the old first edition rules, and uh, it still works great. Um, what was that one where they with what the map? The map was the uh, wilderness. It was another game. It was outdoor a, survival. Outdoor survival. That's right. By Avalon Hill. Yeah, and I, I there was a some, couple people at the convention had it, uh, and they were playing actually outdoor survival, and they said it worked pretty good too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll throw a question yeah, out does. there. I, I I know people that have played Chainmail, and I know people that have played the AD&D version of Chainmail, that box set that came out the much battle later. System. Yeah. But I have never found anybody that ever actually sat down and played Swords and Spells. I haven't. Never heard of it. continue to not find yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll volunteer. I haven't played Swords and Spells. I mean, I, I understand the, the purpose that it served, and, I mean, it was, at the time, Chainmail really was an aging system, and Swords and Spells was just an attempt to try to retrofit some D&D concepts back into Chainmail to make it more plausible that you could execute battles that way. Um, but it just didn't fill a gap that people felt needed to be filled at the time. So it was um, kind of a Chainmail 2.0? It was, really. I mean, it was an attempt to try to build back in concepts of, like, level and hit points and, you know, the, the more spells and weapons and things like that that were in D&D and to show how they could be integrated into those kinds of mass combat rules. The problem was that the alternative combat rules of D&D, you know, the, the attack matrices where you roll a D20, right, against armor class to determine whether or not you hit, those had just become the practice at that point. Yeah. And so it, it was a solution in search of a problem. I mean, no one was really trying to retrofit, uh, you know, the, these concepts into chainmail at the time. I wonder how the sales were on it, though, because I imagine they still probably sold the heck out of it because it had the D&D logo on it. Yeah, I don't think it sold nearly as well as the previous four supplements. I mean, wh- whether you even want to consider it supplement five of D&D is a subject of some, some d- debate, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um the reception of it was positive from people who had that wargaming background. I, I can show you positive reviews in the fanzines of the time. People say, this really is a great improvement over Chainmail. 
Um, but again, there's very little evidence that the rules are actually executed by people in, in tournaments and conventions and their own campaigns. Mm-hmm. One of those, they just bought it and then stuck it up on their shelf. and you know, It's great, but we'll never actually use it. So. Right. But thanks for the call, Montana. And, and for uh, anyone else who would like to put in a call, call us at 940-536-3763. And or three S O D. Or you can write us at uh, saver.podcast at gmail.com. Exactly. We get, we get double exposure because on Thinko's Hammer, half the time I say the sod email instead of the. <laughs> <laughs> I forget, so. We get twice the exposure. <laughs> well, you did Thinko's Hammer here once, so that's all. Okay. Fair. All right. All right. Well, we are going to listen to some very important announcements, and then we shall return with Game On. So you guys are in the Misty Mug. What are you doing? I am buying a Bloody Mermaid lip line, as always. Sunshine comes out from the back. She actually needs some help with the problem. What problem? There's rats in the cellar. Oh, God. Giant rats, I presume. I don't know. Do you want to go check it out? So you guys make your way down into the cellar. Sure enough, amongst the crates and barrels, there are nine giant rats. Remember the last time we fought giant rats? They nearly killed us. In the nest of the giant rats is 2,000 copper pieces. Huh. 20 gold. One's copper. It's 2,000. <laughs> we came here to help Sunshine with their problem. We had to fight the giant rats. Initiative. Yeah. Check out the Delvers podcast at burnedeffects.com. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Ronald Korn, uh, principal at Haddon Heights High School and amateur gamer. Uh, I should say amateur game designer. Um, recently, I kind of hit the waters with a, a request or a plea for old school gaming um, and so some supplies to Haddon Heights High School. Um, trying to get a gaming group off the ground. And, uh, you know, certainly budgets are hard in high school, so we're looking for anyone out there who could possibly uh, donate some supplies. Uh, we're looking for anything that you have, anything that, uh, you know, for ranging from minis to dice to uh, old-school books, um, any condition, uh, any edition, any game. Uh, really, we're looking, you know, I'm trying to raise a new generation of gamers and uh, looking at any means and uh, any available way to do so especially looking at playing some of the classics. Uh, so if you have any um, AD&D materials or basic Dungeons & Dragons, uh, any uh, first edition, second edition, old player's handbook, um, old DM's guide, old adventures, it doesn't matter, whatever condition, uh, we will certainly uh, you know, take what you have. Uh, again, Ronald Korn, Principal Haddon Heights, uh, looking for donations to help support our gaming club. Um, appreciate anything you can do. Thanks. Hi, uh, yeah, Ronald Corn again. And if you have any, um, if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached uh, by email at ronaldcorn at gmail dot com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I am on Facebook as well as uh, at Ronald Corn, and uh, I appear on some of the blogs as Demicorn, D E M I C O R N. Uh, you can find me at the Cobold uh, Press blog site. I tend to work there a little bit and every once in a while on the um, you know the other gaming forums
here we are talking about the wonderful book, Playing at the World, written by a guy named John Peterson. Who happens to be with us today. (laughs) And the first thing I have to ask is, where did you get the idea for the title? Well, you know, I went through a bunch of titles, I guess, as I was playing around with the book. I, I don't know. I, I don't think that those particular four words put together required any great creativity on my part. Now, the enormous subtitle about how it's a history of simulating wars, people, and fantastic adventures from chess to role-playing games, that actually took me much more time to, to craft to try to get something that would realistically convey the subject of the book. I didn't want to put the, in the title of the book, this is a history of D&D. Um, and that, that was actually a, a pretty significant decision on, on my part. Um, a lot of people who have picked up this book and said, well, I, I was expecting history of D&D, and I read it, and this is about like 70,000 more topics in D&D. <laughs> um, that's true, and that enormous subtitle is intended kind of not to mislead you about that. I really do think the story of the book is the story of how we progressed from games like chess to role-playing games and what the transmission of ideas were, who the people were that made the biggest steps forward, and how they influenced one another. That's really the story that I thought was an interesting one, was how we ended up with this amazing gaming culture we have today. It's ironic that you struggled with the subtitle to a book about the history of a game that struggled with the subtitle to the game. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, The the fact that role-playing games resist definition, I think, is an extension of the fact that games themselves kind of resist definition. There's so many diverse activities that we lump under that umbrella term game, right? I mean, if you think of I Spy or Baseball or, you know, Risk, right? I mean, these are all games that, that actually don't have a lot in common. At best, they just have a family resemblance. They all have rules and system and uh, players. And But when you get beyond that, it's hard to generalize about games. It's yeah. equally difficult, I think, to look at role-playing games and say, well, what? how do you define them? What makes a role-playing game? And I think that's one of those questions that we can only really come up with artificial answers for because role-playing games are an artificial category. It's a, a marketing term that emerged that was kind of applied as a label to a set of games that were out there. And they all have some family resemblance, but... Um, you know, I don't think there's some essential definitional core to this that, that makes a role-playing game what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed when I read the book, um, there was a lot of repeated points you, you point out in the book where um, the concept of role-playing, or as you put it, immersive um, gaming, was done well before anybody thought of doing D&D whether it was, you know, as an aspect of some of the uh, refereed war games in the past, or, um, what was it, the Covington? Co- Coventry. Coventry, that was it. The Coventry uh, kind of right. inter- you know, interactive fiction that was on in the 60s in L.A. Yeah, really a fascinating story, actually, Coventry was, and something that was difficult to uh, reconstruct in retrospect. Um, it really only left uh, a fragmentary documentary record behind it and very obscure fanzines. And um, But I found that so many of the people that were involved in this phenomenon went on to be very influential, first in postal diplomacy, but then also in the reception of D&D itself as being part of the community, the science fiction fandom community, that was one of the two groups that first embraced D&D, the other obviously being the war gamers. And 
Coventry itself was kind of like a collaborative fiction, I guess would be the right way to, to describe it. Um, there was some loose administration. That is, there were people who got to decide which pieces of fiction were canon, what was really going to be part of the Coventry story and what wasn't. But it was this kind of collaborative, fantastic, and also slightly science fiction environment about this this bizarre <laughs> space world that was kind of traveling through the cosmos that had a replication of medieval Earth on it and what the wars and politics were that were involved in this. Um, it was a really singular phenomenon but the people who got involved with it happened to go on to be in the SCA and to be, you know, among so many of the other practices that we see leading up to fantastic medieval war games. Well, I got speaking of fandom, I've got some fanish stuff just to get out of the way up front of this interview. I loved the book and I especially loved the uh, the scholarship and the academic uh, scholarship that went into the writing of it. I've, I, I, uh, Tim Cash recommended this book so heartily to me that I expected him to be quoted in every chapter, which I found out when I read it was, was not the case. But uh, I, I, I started with the book, then found your blog, and then uh, haunted some of the forums that you've posted in as you've talked about that, that go back at, to the time as you were writing this book, and just the uh, the uh, the consistency of the of the scholarship, uh, uh, the even handedness of it, the the uh, intent starting out writing this book to avoid some of the uh, personality uh, th- issues that are present in this history. Uh-huh. The, the, sure. the 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 idea where you relied more on uh, documentation and interviews from the time than current recollections of those people who are still with us. Yeah, I was yeah, I mean, rather was- surprised that. Uh, because this work was so academic that you had not written it, in fact, for academia. No, it was really just kind of a hobby. I, <laughs> I, you know, had been collecting material related to this for some time um, since the late 1990s uh, when I started buying up a lot of, I guess, early D&D material. And around 2005, um, well, I, I, there's kind of a story behind this. I was at the British Museum with some friends of mine, um, in February of 2005, and I saw one of those um, first century A.D. Roman 20-sided dice. These have been in the blogosphere here and there, and I, I reproduced a picture of one of them been playing at the world as well. But that was really the moment for me when I just started asking the questions, how far back really did all this go? Um, who, who first picked up a die and rolled it against a table to try to figure out you know, to decide a fictional combat event. It seemed to me like there there had to be a point we could find in intellectual history where there was somebody who invented that, right? And then there was going to be this whole kind of tradition that was going to follow from that. And where was it? And where could you find that? And that's kind of what started me down the path. And initially, I was convinced that this would have been a solved problem, right? That somebody would have written about all this stuff and had figured all this stuff out before. And it would be really fascinating to read about it. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, even the story of D&D, when I started looking into kind of what Gygax and Arneson had done and what had happened in those, you know, say 10 years or so before 1974 when D&D came out, um, I found most of the accounts of that were, were unsourced, um, you know, that were, were basically just anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And, well, there, there had to be some way to get your hands on you know, something that would be stronger evidence than just what contemporary recollection was. So I began very systemically acquiring um, 
most of the periodicals of the era, I think those turned out to be by far the most uh, useful resources for understanding who did what when, especially in those 10 years before 1974. And by the end of my study, it had encompassed um, tens of thousands of periodicals. Um, and that, that really is what let me put together a narrative about this that has from the reception anyway, I've gathered, has been um, very different from what people have seen in the past. Yeah. And regarding the referring to contemporaneous uh, comments as opposed to, you know, current opinions, uh, those who listen to this podcast know I'm in uh, graduate school for history. And that's one of the big things that we are taught to look at with a jaundiced eye is the, the idea of memoirs. Or, you know, current, because even the most sincere people are going to remember things slightly differently to put themselves in a better light. And I'm gratified, gratified that you, you didn't fall into that trap. It's always too easy to just base things on memoirs or that sort of thing. Sure. And I mean, obviously, you have to understand doing this research um, it's a hard line to walk, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, when, when I talked to Dave Arneson, you know, I, obviously, I had the opportunity to interview him a couple times. I wanted to ask him questions, and but for the most part, it's true. My questions were kind of asking for hints about where I could find documentary evidence. <laughs> you know, I, it, the first question I ask everyone is, "So, what do you still have? <laughs> do, you have do you have letters? Do you have an old box somewhere you've been looked at in the last forty years? Can I see it?" Um, well, hey, that, getting- that question, "What do you have out in the garage?" has served you well. Mm-hmm. It's it served me quite well actually. <laughs> um, I've ended up with some really amazing material from this um, stuff I I should not own to be perfectly perfectly clear and. Well, yeah. we have an address. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been working with a museum, with the National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, which I think is um, is amassing a really good collection for this. Some of my, the rarer things I own are now on loan to them, and that's a relationship that's probably going to get uh, tighter as time goes on here. Cool. Are they hey, Mike, open? I think we need to visit your friend Ben in Rochester. Yeah, I was just <laughs> going to ask if they're open. You need to tell Ben about that. I would be less than honest, John, if I said didn't say that as much as I wanted to meet you at North Texas RPG Con, I was looking forward even more to getting a glance at a copy of the Dalhun papers. Right, right, right yeah. So I, I do have a copy of that. Obviously, that's something I did give to the guys in Rochester um, since that's something I shouldn't own. Um, for those that don't know, this, this Dalhun document uh, is, to my knowledge anyway, the, the earliest uh, edition of, of Dungeons and Dragons. It's a 1973 edition, and it's the, the only document I'm aware of that um, reflects a pre-publication state of the game. Ooh. Wow. Dalton, Dalton. We won't ask how much you paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't tell, so yeah, don't okay, bother asking. Cool. So, anyway, without retreading a lot of what's put in your book, but giving our listeners an idea of what the book covers, can you, and this is probably going to be a tough one, in brief, can you, can you tell us what came across to you that most surprised you about the beginning of what we consider the idea of the role-playing game? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess it surprised me how far back the idea of the referee went. And the idea of the referee is perhaps the central one 
um, I think, of, of role-playing games. If we were going to list the things we say that all these games have a family resemblance, um, the fact that there's a human being who interprets the intentions of players and then determines the results of the actions players would like to attempt and then kind of reports them back to the players again, uh, this is something that came directly from wargaming. Uh, the role that, of the referee that we see in the first edition of D&D, uh, the term referee is even something that derives from a particular war game that the authors were familiar with. And this went back to the early 18th century, um, to the, the Ricefitz family game. Uh, Ricefitz invented a referee who, rather than just kind of having what we might consider, you know, like a tournament referee would do for chess, who just kind of makes sure that the rules are being executed properly as two people compete, the referee of Ricefitz had a much more central role in the administration of the game. Uh, they set the scenario of the game, um, something Ricefitz called the, the general idea, and then would tell each player, this is your individual situation, not what, what he called the specific idea. But that referee served this purpose of receiving orders that would be crafted by the players um, in then kind of using the information that the referee knows about the, the state of the game to decide what the results of those orders will be and then reporting back the updated state of the game from that. Managing that secret information, information players wouldn't possess, only giving them such information as they would have in the situation that they're in in the game. Um, this is a tremendously disruptive idea. You kind of look at the precedent of chess and just being able to move pieces on the board under the mutual supervision of your opponents. You know, this took games to an entirely different place and was one of the key enablers of role-playing going forward. So you you put that as the primary, uh, uh, the, the, key, the keystone uh, development because the creation of the impartial referee that has to have a personal relationship with either player creates the role-playing mechanic. It does, in and especially insofar as it creates a situation where anything can be attempted. This is a, a kind of a buzz phrase for those of you that have looked at playing at the world that I come back to again and again. It's a quote from a book uh, by, by a guy by the name of Totten, a book called Strategos. And this was a book that was based basically on the Ricefitz rules that was published in America in 1888, or, sorry, 1880, that uh, people in the Twin Cities, like Dave Wesley, found this book in the 1960s and took from it this concept of the referee, but moreover this concept that the players in the game should be able to try to do absolutely anything. Um, if you, Whatever you think you could do that will help your tactical situation in the game, you should be able to tell the referee, I try to do it. If what you need to do is to set fire to the building, right? <laughs> um, you know, Totten allowed that idea, and Wesley brought this into the gaming circles of the Twin Cities, and this obviously became one of the foundational concepts of the, the Brownstein games, the famous Brownstein games that Dave Artisan played in, and from there in, into D&D, um, into this notion we have that if you're in a room and, you know, the, the, there, there's a 10-foot room with an ogre in a chest, what can you do? Well, if the right thing to do is to sit down and write a poem about it, you can propose to the DM that that's what you do, Right. And well, that was, it's only one step away from, you know, being able to try anything that you could in that situation and the referee adjudicating it to the step of, well, if I really were in that situation, how would I behave? Precisely. Precisely. Which then starts the immersive aspect. And, that was the you know, biggest surprise to me in reading the book was the, the role-playing aspect of role-playing games was so endemic and assumed that it was largely ignored in the rules. 
Sure. And I mean, that's, well, that's, that's kind of a more complicated question of how D&D came together and what the editorial decisions were that, that went into it. Um, and it, it is, but what you say is, is certainly true. Um, it's not clear at all from just looking at the text of D&D whether or not the authors really intended us to do role-playing like we would think about role-playing. Did they consider that we should be speaking in the voice of our character, that we should be trying to constrain what we're going to do to what our character might think of as opposed to what we as people might think of. Um, and D&D is completely silent about that fact. And all we really know about the authorial intention is what we can see in the numerous kind of battle reports or you know accounts of the play of the game that Gygax and Arneson published at the time. And fortunately, there were quite a few. In 1974, Gary published, I think, three um, separate kind of narrative accounts of the play of the game to try to show people what it would be like to play D&D. And from that, we get a real sense of what his games must have been like. They were all based on games he'd actually played. And they were surprisingly role-playing driven. Um, you know, there, one of these stories, The Giant's Bag, is a famous one. Um, in the story of The Giant's Bag, it's basically about someone who is trying to uh, swindle a giant. <laughs> um, they encounter a giant and they try to convince the giant to do their work for them in exchange for some reward and then they make some poor decisions about their business dealings with the giant it turns out the giant gets the better the better hand of them from this <laughs> and you know that that's the kind of thing Gary held up as an example of how the game was supposed to be played this is some of our best indications of what the intention was for role playing and i think it, it does show they really did think you're supposed to role play and that this was an implicit dimension of the game from the start Although I do think at this point it is a minority, I will point out that there are people who play D&D today who are uncomfortable with the immersive. Um, sure. I have known who, who to the day go, my character does this, my character does that, you know, doesn't really want to belay their character. Well, uh, taking I- an, as an example, um, say in the back of the Holmes Basic book, where they give an example of play, it's very third person. Um, you know, DM and, you know, the caller, which not a whole lot of people use anymore, but, you know, the DM says, you know, he hears this, you know, and the caller will say, well, the halfling will listen at the door. And, you know, in the example given, there's not an awful lot of individual players in the example, you know, acting. It's a lot of, we do this, what do we see? You see this, what do you do next? So I wonder if some of, you know, the people who aren't that, you know, big into the role play, you know, you know, that's kind of how I started when I started because that was what I had and, you know, very hmm. third person and narrative. Yeah, and when I started, I started with the immersive, but that's because I almost immediately hooked up with a game a, a group of people that were already running Brown Book D&D. And well, see, that's, that's how they did it. That, that leads back around to what I was trying to uh, say inarticulately. Because what you talked about before on other show, Liz, was that your uncomfortableness with the rules caused a, a barrier to the immersion. But once you got comfortable with the rules, the immersion automatically happened because mm-hmm. it's built into the mechanics of the game. Yeah, as we all became more familiar and more comfortable doing it, we started to you know, get away from you know, the third-person narrative style. Right. But, does, you know, that was that, the initial example given. Right. Yeah, does that sound 
like a standard progression to you, John, as far as your research? So, I mean, curiously, the, the concept of the color that we see in First Ed D&D, I think a lot of people assume this has some great pedigree in, in wargaming, that we'd be able to point to previous games that had a color and that structure. Um, in my experience, that actually isn't true. <laughs> I think we're, we're pretty hard-pressed to identify a prior game with its structure. And I think it comes from, it, it, it arose from the fact that the games that people like Arneson were playing at the time certainly had many, many players. Uh, who would be collaborating on, on one side in the party. And th- this was simply an expedient to make sure that the game operated smoothly under those circumstances. Especially, too, in that in the uh, college circles where Arneson was playing, there was, there was a rotating cast of people who were veterans of the game and then people who just kind of walk in to the University of Minnesota at Minneapolis and want to play for a day. And having, when you see this two accounts of early tournament play, um, the role of the caller is awarded to s- someone who actually knows how to play the game. And meanwhile, they're there with 10 people who, who just walked in in a tournament, right, <laughs> at this mm-hmm. convention, knew nothing about D&D. And mm-hmm. so they kind of needed to have that supervision for it to operate properly. Um, so it was kind of a temporary facilitator until there was a, a large fan base who knew the rules. I think so, and it, it, it just because it doesn't stand up with the accounts that we have of how the games were commonly played. We have several um, first-person accounts of people who played in Arneson's games in '75 and '76 at conventions. Um, we have accounts of similar things with with both Gygax and his son Ernie um, operating games, and uh, there, there certainly was give and take from all the players. It really wasn't so narrowly defined to the agency of, of just the caller and, and the DM and that that aspect of the dialogue. But, I mean, to, the meta point here, I think, is that, yes, as you, you know, the, when, you, when you go back to Ricefitz, when you go back to the original 19th century war game that defined this role of the referee, what Ricefitz hoped to inspire in his players was an experience that approximated very closely the experience of command in the battlefield. You wrote your orders in writing, um, you handed them to someone who would, you know, just as you would to a messenger, and the DM would play all the people that would have to handle and interpret that note and then execute the orders that, that you, you, you wrote there. And in part, this is intended to train you to write better, better orders, right? But it, it's putting you in exactly the position that you would be in if you actually were commanding these forces in the field. That's why it was a great tool for training junior officers. And so when you look at what happens when you give people that freedom of agency, that freedom to propose anything as their orders, it has that immersive dimension to it. You're putting yourself in this person's shoes, having to write what, what they would do. Necessarily, that is going to trigger role-playing, that, that ability to propose anything and that ability and that, that, that drive to role-play seem to me like they're, they're inextricably linked. Okay. It's always a good idea to write a wish spell down and hand it to the DM. <laughs> and get a lawyer exactly. to look it over. Yes. That's right. A demon and, lawyer, preferably. By the way, the early DMs, were they as dictatorial as I declare your character dead? <laughs> like the Jack Chick comics. Yes. <laughs> I, I think um, I think that there was great diversity in this and that, you know, what one of the questions that a lot of people, like, you know, Don Lowry, who famously rejected the game of D&D for publication at Gaiden Games, which was one of the things that led to the foundation of TSR, Lowry looked at the system and said, who would want to be a dungeon master? I mean, you've got to do all this work. 
um, you know, all this pregame work. You've got to execute these systems. People are going to be proposing these crazy things to you, and you've got to make up something to respond to them with. Why would anybody want to do that? And, and I mean, underestimated the masochism of the creative personality. Well, I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is there are incentives you get out of running a world that people like to be in. And the, the early fans in L.A. in 1975 put this really well, that the, that the DM wins when people want to return to their world. Right. You, when you, right they, there were a lot of people there who wanted to run dungeons and a relatively small number of players actually that, that, whose attention they were competing for. And the people who became successful are the ones that could provide a, a compelling experience around all of this. And so there is this dimension that you've got to, um, not be so dictatorial. You have to understand what it is that your players want and engage in this collaborative process with them to be able to deliver a story they find compelling enough that they come back. Because that's how you win as the DM. Right. I know from reading the book that uh, not only were there no callers uh, in those old days, but there were co-DMs, like Rob Kunt's co-DMing Greyhawk. Oh, quite, yeah. And, I mean, Arneson um, pretty quickly relinquished control over the Blackmore campaign, um, and numerous local referees, people, you know, like uh, Snyder, um, Svensson, started kind of running running their own games. And Arneson sort of became like a, a you know, campaign meta-administrator where he helped coordinate and make sure that all the right things were happening for, for these, these different aspects of the world. But the actual duty of DMing, he delegated out to, to all sorts of people. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the couple, but I seem to rem- recall a couple you mentioned where the husband and wife alternated the levels of the dungeon that they DM'd. Hmm. Yeah, it was probably Lee Gold and Barry Gold. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the Golds. I don't remember if that was an actual game or their oh. eventual work on uh, the, the computer games. Yeah, I think that was one of their early, that may have been Neocaren. They had a couple of early dungeons. I think Neocaren was the one where they designed alternating levels. Um, okay. But it, it, you can look it up in the book. It'll be right there. <laughs> uh, what, you don't have all 800 pages memorized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's risky for me to come on and talk about this stuff so freely because you you can get things wrong. Oh your, yeah, yeah. I, and that's yeah, we're here so to embarrassing. You God forbid you say anything wrong on the internet. I know, I know. But you live in fear of. But you see, well, in thirty-five years, someone will write a history of uh, <laughs> right, find right. our stuff on the internet. Yeah. John, I think you did a magnificent job in the book of avoiding the personalities aspects of it. But some of it is inevitable because of human neurology and psychology. Just like I was talking back in the day, we all would take possession of our game. This is my system. People do that with personalities, like Gygax and Arneson. Sure. So, so how do you handle some of that feedback when it comes to you on your blog and? Well, so there are things I think are salient to the transmission of ideas, right, to the goal of, of, of the, the study. And where these personal things aren't um, just kind of sensational detours, I'm not, I'm not afraid to get into them. Um, you know, certainly I talk pretty frankly about the fact that, for example, I'm not sure Dave Arneson found the fantasy setting for gaming to be his favorite by any stretch of the imagination, um, I actually think he was much more interested in the Napoleonic setting that he consistently prioritized it over working on Blackmore. And 
I think, you know, Blackmore kind of was a runaway success. You, you read this about Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, he created Sherlock Holmes. And why wouldn't, if you created Sherlock Holmes, you just want to dedicate your life to writing more Sherlock Holmes stories? He hated Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> right, he, right. He wrote some early stories about him, and he, he tried desperately to branch out, but the only things people wanted to buy from him were more Sherlock Holmes. And so he, he kind of got dragged into that. He was, he was, a, he was, an, he was an Edgar Rice Burroughs type author, you know, Lost World and all that. And all I think that was his only other sort of success was all they wanted, Challenger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all they wanted was Holmes. Yeah. 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 Although, and speaking I, of, um, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but so yeah, true. about, um, you know, Arneson not being too keen on the fantasy thing, that reminds me, you know, reading about, you know, Don Featherstone having been so <laughs> right. sneery about the inclusion of fantasy into medieval wargaming. And that kind of surprised me. I guess maybe it shouldn't have. You know, he always sort of seems to have a, you know, very scholarly and, you know, serious kind of outlook with his books. But, you know, I was, I was kind of amazed reading about how he apparently just poo-pooed the whole inclusion of fantasy elements into medieval wargaming scenarios. Absolutely. And I mean, I I think I go so far as to at least imply that if that hadn't been the case, it's very likely Tony Bath would have invented what we consider to be role-playing games. And that, you know, Don Featherstone's constant pushback against this um, was one of the things that kind of drove Tony Bath in alternate directions. And he, he had all the right ingredients and he had all the right ideas. I mean, he'd been working on these fantasy settings since the 1950s. Wow. I mean, in the late 50s, you see Tony Bath working on Hyboria and Tolkia, like based on Howard and Tolkien, respectively. Mm-hmm. There are wizards in his games. There's magic in his games. Now, it's not quite what you would get in Chainmail. Um, they had a relatively limited role. But you, you quickly see, once he started to give this stuff more free reign in the early 1970s, he really was experimenting with things very similar to what was going on in Lake Geneva and in the Twin Cities at the time. And, you know, I, I, if I ever meet Don Featherstone, he's still alive. Yeah, he's a very elderly man now. I fully expect him to cane me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some of the things I said in that. Um, but So you, you think it would have... It is an inevitable progression from skirmish wargaming to role-playing? I mean, I wouldn't say it's an inevitable progression, but Bath had the fantastic component of this, I mean, from very early on. Um, And he had that idea, at least by 1968, of there being individuals with extreme freedom of agency who were you know, able to dictate things way outside the scope of combat. I mean, one of the things that makes role-playing games so different from war games is the scope of simulation of war games is typically constrained to combat. Whereas the scope of simulation in role-playing games is really to lives and worlds, right? I mean, that's why, again, in the title, the subtitle playing at the world, you get that wars, people, and fantastic adventures. I mean, you, there really was a shift from simulating wars to simulating people, and that shift enabled so many of the features that we come to associate with us. Um, so I, I think we see that in Bath, and I write about some of his games. I just call them the Southampton games. They didn't have formal names that were very much like the Brownstein games, the Twin Cities, where he had a fantasy game you'd show up for. People would be assigned roles. You're John Carter. You're King Arthur. You're, you know, <laughs> they were all you know, familiar kind of fantasy characters. Here's your specific goal. 
and that they would just be these massive free-for-alls with 16 players competing to find treasure, fighting monsters, there's magic. I mean, all these things that we would associate really with the D&D game were out there. Well, I have a lot of respect for Don Featherstone. I love his books and stuff, but I must admit, I, it does strike me as kind of odd, you know, that, you know, how dare you put dinosaurs on, you know, plastic dinosaurs on our table where we're playing with little plastic or lead men because that's childish. What? And I I hesitate to keep even more aspersions on Don the Featherstone, but there there is one more thing I'd add to that, which was that, you know, there was a trend to do battle reports at the time that were um, very immersive, right? The people would write um, a kind of post- you know, autopsy, yeah, like you mentioned, Stevens right. did. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And Featherstone hated that stuff. I mean, Featherstone thought that a battle port report that was written from the perspective of, you know, the characters who were in it and what they saw and things like that, he completely disparaged that as well. So any of that immersive dimension to wargaming, he also very much wanted to, to at least keep out of the, the magazines that he was responsible hmm. for administering. I wonder what his stand would have been on historical fiction, then. Well, I don't know that he was mm. opposed to historical fiction. I think he viewed the wargaming hobby as being something very particular and singular and narrow. And he saw a bunch of these influences, and writing two immersive battle reports was one, fantasy was another, um, even some forms of um, overly kind of simulationist, um, you know, v- very complex systems for, for describing the game. He pushed back on all those. He wanted this to be a simple uh, hobby that you played casually, that you didn't take too seriously, you didn't get too involved with. It was just a fun thing to do on an afternoon. That's Mike true. And, That's one Mike. of the things I like about him was that, you know, he, he did not subscribe to the incredibly complex war games because I, I agree with him fully on that. I was a teenager in 79, Mike and Liz, and I can still remember when it was the war gamers versus the role players. Where, I mean, and, and you didn't cross the line. Yeah. Fortunately, the group I was with was equally war gamers and role players when I first started gaming in Mississippi. So I, I didn't run into that dichotomy until I moved to Texas. There was an established uh, gaming community from the 60s and 70s living and thriving in Cincinnati when D&D came along and I was coming up, and D&D just about uh, permanently split the group in two. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember you quoted one one guy, I think it was in the Great Plains group, John, uh, who was basically said that D&D was like heroin. Right, as, yeah. as far as the other members of the group, just uh, just only wanted to play D&D and D&D and D&D. Yeah, a lot of the stuff, same. Uh, keep like keep the that stuff in the orc parts. neighborhoods. Yeah. Sorry, what was that, Glenn? I, I said, yeah, later on it was uh, the collectible card game. It was the magic cards. You know, it's like I got the feeling when magic came out and all the role players were disparaging the cons was being taken over by magic. I think it was a little bit of get back from the war gamers. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's always the next thing. Yeah, um, you know, it's the war gamers sneer at role players. Role yeah. players sneer at card players. Card players uh, sneer at larpers. All I could, all I could think of is these bunch of grognards saying, "Yeah, payback's a bitch, isn't it?" Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Okay, well, now uh, we've pretty much hit the gaming aspect of it, I think, or as far as the players. 
let's move into DM Fiat and talk about the idea of the referee a bit more. Nope. Sorry. What? Uh, nope. You're wrong. Look it up. I don't have to look it up. It's common knowledge. Nope. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> DM Fiat. Okay, now we're going to talk about the whole idea of the, more on anyway, the referee and controlling the player's environment and then having the players, I mean, they don't have to be cooperative, but let's face it, that's really was the inherent idea behind the role-playing game. The more sometimes, I think, sometimes I think this podcast could use a referee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there is that too. The moron referee? <laughs> One thing I, I read in the book that I thought was, yeah, I always assumed that the term game master had evolved just as a generic version of dungeon master. But right. to find out that game master actually predated D&D was a real surprise. Yeah, it was, it was a postal diplomacy term first. Um, certainly went back to the, the early 1960s. Uh, the way postal diplomacy was administered, you needed to have a, a neutral third party who would simultaneously evaluate all the different diplomacy moves that people proposed. And so people used the term games master for the administrator of that system. And you see that term as well even in postal fantasy games like the fascinating Midgard family of games. Um, that were around in kind of the early 1970s that are probably the closest evolutionary ancestor to D&D, the games that came closest to hitting on the same formula but didn't quite make it. Yeah, a couple of episodes ago, we covered uh, Supplement 2 Blackmore, and we made the point that in the foreword there, when Gygax was talking up Arneson's game, was the first time that the term Dungeon Master had actually been mentioned in the books, and it was more of calling him he was a master of dungeons rather than as an official title like Games Master. In your research, did you ever come across when that became a regular title, Dungeon Master? Sure. Um, I mean, this is a term, to the best of my knowledge, it came out of San Francisco probably in late 1974 or so. You, you see it in the science fiction fandom community, APAs, in late 74 into 75, um, certainly by the time Alarms and, Obs- and Excursions started in uh, June of 1975, that's when it really started to take off and have some visibility in the community. It was used very frequently in the first issue of Alarms. That's certainly where Gary Gygax first saw it. Um, he received a, a courtesy copy of the first issue of Alarms, and um, he actually wrote a nice letter to the, the second edition about it. You don't really see this um, in TSR products until early in 1976, um, if, I, if I recall correctly. Well, I don't know. I guess you see it in the strategic review in, I guess that's actually late in 75, and then in Blackmore right afterwards. Blackmore just snuck in at the end of 75. Mm-hmm. But they had started talking about Dungeon Master as a product around that time, yeah. Okay, so it had been in... Well, we haven't gotten to a strategic review episode yet. It's a couple episodes down the road, but okay. already got caught. I got caught in an error. Apparently, it was used before Blackmore. Then, well, I need to think about that. Um, yeah, again, I, I don't want to be wrong about that. Well, I know seventy-five. So, that's pretty close enough. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So certainly, it was used in the fan community. Whether there's any official TSR product that used it before Blackmore, yeah, I don't know. 
Okay, we'll have to have to take a look at that then. So the idea of being both the referee and the opposition, um, how radical was that in Dungeons and Dragons, or was that another leftover from some of the earlier war games? So some military schools did play one-sided war games, um, especially in the 20th century. If you had a, a Reisbitzian referee, um, they could lead a single player against a force that the referee controlled. Uh, these were typically games that would just be tutorial in nature to get people up to speed so they could work against an actual opponent. So more um, of a class. Yeah, more, yeah, again, more of a, a tutorial exercise then. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly you're correct that once a referee becomes responsible for some forces on the board, they do cease to be neutral, and that is a, a real concern. One fascinating thing about Reisfitz, um, was he was the first guy to introduce the referee to these war games, and also the first guy to introduce dice to them. And dice actually help a referee to remain neutral. Um, you know, dice are something that can remove an unconscious bias you have towards a particular player in the game, for example. Um, they, they don't necessarily move all forms of bias, but the ability to say, well, okay, this force is attacking this force, rather than just, I'm going to decide which one wins, being able to have a table and to roll a die and for it to be controlled randomly within that statistical framework uh, provides less bias than you would get if the referee just made a decision by fiat there. Yeah, that's... That- Something I found really fascinating was that even in the 19th century, you had the arguments of rules-heavy games versus rules-light. There was that French fellow, whose name escapes me, right. who basically argued against the Rice-Witzian games by saying, you know, the player or, you know, the commander isn't going to see what the rules are anyway, so the referee might as well make up a result. Why have all these incredibly complex tables, et cetera, Right. Right, right. That's, yeah, Verde de Vernois you're thinking of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Glenn, I jumped in there. No, that's all right. I was just going to make a snide comment. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, and thus, dice fudging was born. <laughs> <laughs> or, is that, well, or is that later with the adventure of the DM screen? <laughs> well, it's interesting. If you look at Verde de Vernois, I mean, he also was one of the first authors who took um, the orders you issued for war games out of writing and made it just actually a verbal dialogue with the players. Uh-huh. And that verbal dialogue became much more immediate. You had a much smaller time scale because of that. And there's a trajectory you can draw that goes from Reisfitz up through various uh, 20th century authors to Korns, to Michael J. Korns's, um Modern Warfare in Miniature. And that's certainly a game that was well-known in Lake Geneva and in the Twin Cities that has only a two-second move time scale. Um, where you have a very close and fast dialogue with the referee, very immersive. And if you look at the kind of the, the caller and referee um, example that's given in OD&D and compare it to the comparable examples in Korns, you'll see that there's no small resemblance between the way that they're done. Hmm. I'll have to look at that, but then I'm a history geek, so... You know, especially history and wargaming slash role-playing games is just... That's why when I, when Jim told me about your book, I just had to jump all over it because it's like, I love I, that sort of stuff. What I thought was interesting was when Tim Kask uh, encouraged me to read your book, he, he, he prefaced it with, it's a tough slog. And uh, I didn't find it so, although there were parts that I were more interested in personally, historically, and parts less because I don't 
I've never been a traditional board game wargamer guy, so those. But I didn't find it tough at all. I found it just perhaps dense is a better term. Dense, yes, because it is chock full of information. I mean, it could be a textbook and a course teaching this subject. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I have no illusions that this is like a mass market paperback, right? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is something that you should really only undertake if you are, you don't want to just hear what the story is. You want to hear why the story works the way that I'm saying it does. Well, you want to see ulti- what the evidence is for it. <laughs> Do you have any advanced degrees? No, no, no. You really should keep this on the side and go for like a graduate degree <laughs> in game history or something. Cause this was definitely thesis dissertation yeah. material. Well, not only did I not find it a tough slog, I, this is my ultimate compliment for any book. When I got to the end, I didn't want it to end. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wanted there to be like another 800 pages going on from 78 or wherever it was the book stopped in time. Yeah, like 78, 77 or 78 to maybe 88 or 89 would just be my sweet spot. That would just per- <laughs> make it perfect. Not saying you should write a book, another one, but if right. you felt like you wanted to so but here's the thing about that so so two things my 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 snarky answer to that request which i get a lot (laughs) is always that it's too easy um so the the material i had to get to do this is material that's impossible to come by and for me the 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 great pleasure in actually doing this five-year process to create this was really in the research this is something where every day i woke up that i was working on it i was just so psyched to be able to like look at more stuff, sort through more stuff, playing this enormous game of concentration across you know thousands of documents. Hey, that guy's name, I know that name. Yeah, that was over here. Um, just the process was an amazing one. That after you get into the '80s, you know this is so well documented. It was so popular. Um, it's no longer really a story that you need to unearth unfindable things to get anymore. And that, that process is really part of what made this so fun. So, that, yeah. that so, you, can't, so you can't give us even one more Sherlock Holmes story. <laughs> <laughs> but so this, my less snarky answer is it's also after 82 or 83, it's not, it's kind of a depressing story, right? Um, so if you're, if you're yeah. following the TSR thread. Oh, um, right, right. That's true. There's the, the, the Gygax Blooms thing and the Lorraine Williams and yeah. So on and so forth, and yeah, I, I can see your point there. So basically, I mean, once D and D became the the gateway to Satanism, you know, you really just can't can't mess with it anymore. Well, and I, 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 and I looked at it like there was some amazing things that were invented, and I wanted to cover their invention, the reception, and the culture that they created. And I think I could do that in the time scale that I I was showing. And, you know, beyond that, sure, there's innovation, and I, I, I love what Ryan Hagen and Jonathan Tweed did, right? I, I love the White Wolf games. I, I played those really before I played TNT. <laughs> so, I mean, it just, I went back from those to this. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, I, it's not that I don't think that there, there's further innovation, um, but I think that that innovation, it's, it's easy to understand kind of how it came about. And much like, you, you know, you could write about Avalon Hill and start with tactics, and then write a, a, you know, a book that details every little system innovation that follows tactics that you see in so many of the games that followed up into, you know, the 70s and the 80s even. But, you know, the germ of the idea, the, the people who really moved the ball forward did so pretty early on there is, is my opinion. And I just don't think it's as interesting to look at kind of what the variations were that were prevalent later. 
Well, jumping back to dice, I really like the explanation of the emergence of polyhedrals. And I had mm-hmm. not realized that the, the ten-sider was not, you know, a platonic solid. Right. I don't know why that had never clicked with me, but it hadn't. And then it's like, oh, yeah, so... And what was it, Luzaki ended up creating that? Yeah, he created one of the, the better designs for, for the 10-sider, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, really what he did is he, he took a 20-sider and he um, shrunk half of the faces down into very, very tiny triangles. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's effectively what his 10-sider his is. <laughs> right, well, and, and it works. Um, mm. Although some of the stories you were talking about, how people were, like, having in fanzines and stuff, little little patterns to make their own cardboard 20-siders and stuff. It was like, right, that was Len LaKafka who did that. Was uh, that Len LaKafka? Okay. It was, yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Um, Can you imagine having to build your own 20-siders, guys? Uh, somewhere I've read an article where uh, prisoners did that a lot. They could create their own 20-siders in prison out of, like, you know, paper mache toilet paper or something. Yeah. Or soap. Now, I find this part of the story fascinating as well. Again, I, I am interested, like I said, for my British Museum story and kind of how far back these concepts of these dice went and knowing that they're platonic solids and kind of what that meant and why it made them fair dice and how platonic solids became available as scientific implements and then ultimately ended up in these games. Um, I think the causal chain you can create for that is a very, very satisfying and compelling one. There aren't that many historical things where I can just kind of show a slam dunk here is obviously how this all happened, but that's one where you really can. As an example of the links they went to before all this, uh, I was over in Tim's basement, and Tim had taken uh, – I'm uh, Mike I'm blanking on the guy's name, the gentleman who wrote Fight in the Skies. Mike Carr. Mike Carr. I almost got it out. Uh, Tim, of course, has the original version of it, and what Tim had done when he got the game way back in the day was sit down with a calculator or a slide rule and work out the exact percentages of those two DD6 results to see how close they approximated the 5% increments of a percentile roll. And it just blows my mind that anybody went to that tr- trouble to recreate percentile <laughs> dice rolls with 2D6. But they had no. to, because that's what they had. Yeah, it's important to remember that um, a lot of people early on in D&D fandom couldn't get copies of D&D, and it's, you can Xerox rules, right? And people did. People endemically Xerox the rules of D&D, but you can't Xerox dice. And ah. if dice are necessary for play, you have to have some way to approximate them to be useful. And there was tremendous controversy early on about exactly how you were even supposed to use these dice in play. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, people were rolling, you know, basically 2d10, that is two 20-siders, as their two to hit rolls, right? Rather than coloring in half the faces on one of the 20-siders, uh, to, so it could roll a number from 1 to 20, they were just rolling like, you know, two, 2d10. <laughs> well, a lot of the original rules had stuff like, you know, and it does 2 to 7 points of damage. And you were just supposed to assume, oh yeah, I roll a d6 and add one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I didn't actually say that though. Oh, it's terrible. Like, you know, for example, go through OD&D and ask, you know, find out what you're supposed to roll to make a saving throw. Is it 3d6 or is it 1d20? OD&D doesn't tell you. Um, (laughs) I can tell you that all of the saving throw results are between 3 and 18. That'll give you a clue right there. In uh, in Tim Casco D and D campaign, the dice roll is it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> You're dead. The, I roll a dice behind the screen to make you think I rolled something and then tell you what happened. Yeah. Well, like this is the Save or Die podcast. It's important for you guys to know how to save, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> well, although, talking about, although talking about dice, um, I have heard two different arguments, and if you mention it in your book, I must have zoned it out, but the Holmes Basic Box set came out for a while with chits and not with actual dice. There was a period of time. And I've heard two arguments on that. One was that they ran out of dice because of excessive sales, so they did that as a stopgap measure. And I have heard that that was done as a cost-saving measure. Did any of your research say anything to that one way or the other? Um, my understanding was it was the former. I, I don't know if I have the exact source for that ready to hand now. Um, I know that they were having terrible trouble negotiating with suppliers at uh, creative publications, at the people that they were they were buying their dice from. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to do two things at once, one, to get direct access to Hong Kong sources for this, and two, to actually start commissioning their own dice for production. So the, by the time you see in you know, later uh, box editions in the early 80s, them with the 10-sided dice included, that is, you know, from their own prefabs that they they effectively, uh, you know, had custom-made for their products. So I think they were were exploring a bunch of different alternatives then, but it was mostly that they just couldn't keep up with demand for this in a cost-effective way. And then that's how you got the high-impact pebble. Right, yeah. (laughs) Ah, yes, the old low-impact dice. I think I've still got some of them around somewhere. I have mine right here. Do they like our group? The D20 doesn't anymore. So the ones that shipped with Holmes were actually the creative publications dice. So those are actually basically the dice you would have gotten if you mail-ordered dice from TSR in 1974. Okay. Okay. Okay, the various... Concurrent with that, they weren't just supplying them in the box sets. They were trying to funnel them through the Dungeon Hobby Shop mail order, too, right? Dragon Dice, I had some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they were not in the original uh, wood grains and white boxes at all. Um, they were sold separately, and this was you know, a considerable source of additional income for them, actually, early on. They charged about a 50-cent markup. <laughs> for those from what they, they were buying them from, and you needed them to play. So, yeah, they, they sold quite a few of them. I did find it amusing that one of the biggest and recurring gripes about Dungeons and Dragons when it first came out was its "quote unquote" huge price. And, <laughs> yeah, and and gamers today, especially, were a curmudgeony cheap lot, and we're always going, "Oh my God, that's so expensive! That's fifty, sixty bucks!" So, yeah. You know, whereas D and D was only blah back in the day, and it's like, well, at the time, that was. Causing people to raise eyebrows, price ten, ten bucks in 1974 was more than three hours minimum wage. Yeah, so yeah. it's like 25, 30 bucks. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, as they called it, Xerox fandom became so popular was because you had to price these things at a level where, you know, because Xerox was still quite expensive at that time. We think of Xerox as costing nothing. Um, mm-hmm. Doing Xerox actually cost money then. But given how much the game cost, it was slightly cost slightly less to Xerox it than it would to, to buy your own. 
Especially but, if you were using it at work or at a college. Right, and of course, availability was the other big problem, especially in the first two years, where it just simply couldn't be found at any price um, early on. Well, since the statute of limitations has expired now, I can remember Xeroxing monochromatic modules at my friend's work because they had a Xerox machine. There weren't, there weren't any Kinkos then. Well, that was the whole idea of printing the blue maps, wasn't it, to prevent Xeroxing? Right. In the well, early modules. Hmm. Didn't, didn't stop us from trying. Well, yeah, of course not, but yeah. Hmm. Then they found out non-repro blue. That's supposed to be non-repro blue, but that doesn't work with Xerox. I found that out the hard way. Ah. My karma's good. I've since given them plenty of money. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Sure enough. <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Anyway. Huh, All right. Well, let's, uh, unless we want to hit anything more on the DM side of things, yeah. we'll move into products of your imagination. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons game. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Products of your imagination. This is where we talk about the book. As a product. Hell, you're I'll, kidding, right? We, 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 we'll say we're going to, we're, 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 we're going to, we're, we're going to be, be honest here. So, you know. We're going to rate the book in front of the guy who wrote it? Yes, we are. We all do. Do I, do I get to rate it too? Because, I mean, I, I think I get a vote, right? Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> sure. You're a guest host. That's fair. <laughs> that's right. No. That's fine. So. Huh. Obviously, I'm not in a position to really talk about formatting or layout, so I shall go to the format layout girl. Well, unfortunately, I have not looked at the format layout because I'm looking at the PDF version that I made for you, which was text only. So I really can't. Oh, yeah, from the EPUB. Yeah. We did not pirate your book. I yeah. bought the Kindle version. It's just. Uh-huh. And you, did, and you didn't give it to me? And, and I can't get the Kindle version. I can't read the Vindle, yeah, the Kindle version on my software. So she had to convert it to a book. Yeah, so I converted it to a PDF so that his voice recognition software would read it to him. Yes. Uh, and Glenn didn't read it, so that means it's up to you. <laughs> I uh, actually And John, of course. When I first read the book, I, I uh, bought the Kindle version too. But uh, at GaryCon, I picked up a hardback copy to get autographed, and then couldn't chase you down, John. <laughs> so I'm a good customer. I, I, I bought two copies of the book. Well, we're going to buy a hard copy next week because I want to send it to a friend of mine to get him to read it, and he's a super technophobe. So I got to send him a hard copy. So how does it look, Jim? I mean, it's your standard hardback book. Uh, book. <laughs> Amazon's going to make anything off of us. I mean, the the, the reproductions of, that are in there. I mean, obviously, it's not illustration heavy, but the reproductions that are in there are solid gold, like the reproduction of a character sheet from the Blackmore campaign in the mid seventies. I'm just like, what the what? You're kidding me, you know? Oh, some, oh yeah, I I forgot to mention, you know, the PDF version does convert over the you know some of the you know vintage photographs, you know of. 
and everything included. So that is a really another really cool portion of the book. You can actually see the pictures and the people in their youth and, you know, gone. <laughs> Some of the iconic yeah, I, you know, stuff. I, I assumed when it came out that actually that Blackmore character sheet would be the, the real just wow that would floor everyone. Um, so I'm not aware there are actually any other existing Blackmore character sheets from before D&D. Um, but it's actually the Great Kingdom map is what everyone was just wowed about. This is from one of those Domesday books, since Domesday mm-hmm. books are so hard to come by. Um, you know, it was, I guess, a revelation for a lot of people to be able to see what the Great Kingdom really looked like at the time. Um, but I, I thought that that character sheet was a way more interesting thing to include than that, frankly. <laughs> was that part of your collection or just something I, you got to look at in someone else's? No, I, I have all that stuff, yeah. Wow. I have a lot of stuff, again, like I said, I shouldn't have. So where do you live again? <laughs> no, just Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a heavily fortified bunker. Um, In an undisclosed location. So should we give this... Guarded by a thousand protection points of ogres, balrogs, and yes. You're and not, cobalts, if you, right? If you, yeah, yes. Uh, if the cobalts were there, we'd get an easy. <laughs> Put Liz in front. No, Liz would get an easy. We wouldn't. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, should we give this thing a rating or something like that, or what do we what do we do, Dre? Want to talk about uh, anything else? Does it does the cover have a dra- uh, have a demon on it? The cover has one of the D20s we were just talking about from the home basic set. So you 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 okay. have me right there. Well, that's that's a good one. I mean, that's something. I, as much as I love D and D, you know, there was always the the whole satanic thing that came up in the early '80s, and you know, well, you know, the covers of the AD&D hardbacks originally didn't exactly help that image a little, but... Yeah, and I did cover that, by the way, in the epilogue of the book. There's a whole thing about the about uh, James Dallas Egbert and the original steam tunnel. Yeah, William uh, and Yeah. Although, I guess, compared to the cover of Eldritch Wizardry, you know, it could be worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Any other comments? I just think the sheer amount of anecdotal um, evidence, um, so many, you know, just fantastic stories that you would not, you know, get just from your generic, you know, perusal of, you know, supplements and, you know, back issues of magazines that are relatively easy to get for most gamers nowadays, you know, it's worth getting. There's just, I, I can't even begin to adequately say how much you can learn, you know, just from reading the first chapter alone about the history and, you know, just... It's yeah. amazing. Not I'm, to geek out on you. But, yeah. I, I think I already have. Let me sell this book on the Internet. If you participate in any old school gamer forum, you need to read this book so that you can thereafter win every argument, not only by being correct, but by being able to cite sources. Okay. And that's not just role playing. That's wargaming and even, you know, LARPing or you know, some of the old fiction of the era. You know, uh-huh. we've got a lot of valid stuff here. Yeah, and for, you know, Arneson and Blackmore people, you know, I thought it was really interesting to find out, you know, 
there was a campaign newspaper that Arneson circulated for his original Blackmore campaign oh, yeah. that he ran. You know, the Blackmore Gazette and Rumor Monger. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's like, that just sounds so cool. <laughs> and, you know, the, the brief excerpts that you get to, to, you know, hear about the newsletters, like, Ah, you know, <laughs> castle well, burned while heroes away. <laughs> well, since you bring it up, I mean, the, the the easy thing to focus on in this book is that the historical content. But what I really got a charge out of was, I mean, you look at things in the past and these titans of industry in the gaming community with all this awe and reverence. I liked reading those battle reports and how much freaking fun they were just having and how silly they were when they were doing it. Just yeah. like we, just like us, we do today. You know, I killed it with a laser beam. Oh, yay! Wasted <laughs> right. with my crossbow. Yep. All right. Well, then I guess, unless we want to hit on any other points, uh, we shall start gra- gauging dragons, and we'll start with Liz. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna give it five dragons. I just thought this was a really cool book. It's, just chock full of neato keen information, things that you're not going to automatically know. And there's going to be something of interest for just about anybody who picks it up, whatever their particular style of gaming may be. You're going to find something reading it that you're just going to be blown away. All right. Jim? Oh, five. I mean, there's no question. Really? No. I, five dragons, and I'm right. And anybody that doesn't rate it, five dragons is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn? Four and a half, and I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get a lot of reviews from people who haven't read it, so don't... don't. <laughs> we're not the first. Well, you know, it, it, got to, it got to the point where I was reading gaming blogs and I couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting this book. <laughs> so... So I got to read it. I will pony up the what is it, thirty bucks, thirty-five bucks, and get it and read it. And for a cheapo like him, that's saying something. Yes. Yeah. If you if you you know have an EPUB reader or a Kindle reader, you can get this in EPUB or Kindle or something as well. Yeah, it's, it's much I know. Cheaper. Yeah, and a lot unlike a lot of Kindle stuff, it is actually significantly cheaper to get. I try, I tried to talk Becky into getting it for me, but we're broke right now and it's 18 bucks. Okay. She, she goes, <laughs> she buys all the free books and stuff and the one and $2 stuff. So you can see where that's going, yeah. but it'll get there and it'll be in my hot little hands and I will read it. Well, John, you want to give it a grade? I really don't know how to evaluate it, other than to say what I said already, which is that I don't think it's for everyone. And I, I think that is a very fair thing to say, that you know, it's a book for people who are really very interested in this. If you're looking for like a general introduction to RPGs or kind of a more mass market narrative of what was up with Gary on a, on a crisp morning in you know, January of 1974, and he unboxed the first issue of D&D and pulled it. There's not stuff like that, and it really is like a, a pretty dry um, pretty scholarly study study of the game, and uh, however, if that's what you're yeah. looking for, I I don't think there's anything comparable you're going to find out there. Look, exactly, I, and I, I would agree. I would agree with that, and which is why I will give it a four and a half. I would give it a five, but you see, I like dry, academic, thick, dense stuff. 
So I feel like I'm a little unduly biased in that regard. I think for the average person, I still think it's a four and a half easily. I and I may like just be it, coming. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> That's <laughs> very true. I, I want to get this straight. You think it's a five, but you're going to rate it four and a half for other people. Yeah. Okay. You know, as long as I'm, as long because as I'm personally, right. I'm a five. Yeah. Some people out there will get this. If I can get through Mike Barrier's tome about animation, I can get through this book. <laughs> but obviously none of us get that. So It wasn't for you. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll be heading down the highway once again. John, As- thank you for doing this. Yes, thank you very oh, much. My pleasure. No. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun to be here, and sure. I really do appreciate. I know you, this is hardly the first time that that this book has been mentioned on the podcast, and I really do appreciate you know, Jim. You've really gone to bat for it. I know. Um, I really do appreciate you giving me a chance to come on and talk about it, and really shedding the spotlight on it. So thanks so much. Thanks for giving us all these interesting aspects of it. And again, you know, if you're interested in the hobby, grab this book. Even if you just read sections of it at a time and don't want to, like, sit down in one reading, it is great. Mm-hmm. And as we traditionally do, we head down the highway to the music from the old Incredible Hulk TV show, the Bill Bixby f- hitchhiking theme. Mm-hmm. And how are you heading down the road this time, Jim? Uh, I am simulating my journey uh, recording my other podcast, uh, Spellburn.com, with polyhedrals. With polyhedrals. Ooh. Liz? I am going down the road as Castle Blackmore burns behind me. <laughs> <laughs> because I wasn't there to protect it. You're busy in the dungeons. <laughs> and Land? now I'm running away before the townsfolk get me. Yes. And the elves put in the, the turnstiles. Oh, boy. Glenn? I am running down the road with a copy of John's book under my arm, tossing Zachi dice at Jim's head. <laughs> <laughs> Zachi Hedrons? Zachi Hedrons. Oh, yeah, the big ones, the 100-siders. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, they they good ones. Get a good spin on that. Uh, if I get a request, use a D5 because they don't roll true. <laughs> ah, okay. And I'm heading down the way, totally, probably about to get run over by a semi because I'm too busy rereading the book yet again. <laughs> and thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you on the other side. Good night, the next episode. Good night, everyone. Good night. Free arc. Good night. Good night. Thanks. The Savor Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions, and the Savor Die theme is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. Promotional consideration for the Savor Die Podcast was provided by absolutely no one. But if you want to send us free stuff, we're for sale. Glenn Halstrom's wardrobe was provided by Botany 500. Obligatory Doctor Who references were provided by Liz and Mike Stewart. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. <laughs>